financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out, higher than expected. Friends, this isn't going away. It can't. The U.S. is $34 trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They'll help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. Text STRANGE to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation with gold. Text STRANGE to 989898 now. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the connection between the Freemasons and the Book of Enoch. In the Book of Enoch, despite the fact that the knowledge is coming from the fallen angels, God approves it. It's a split. They completely contradict each other. There's no question about it. In the Bible, the knowledge is perceived as unholy and evil, whereas in the Book of Enoch, the knowledge that Enoch squirrels away is divine and godly. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. A donation of $50 a month places you in the Star Chamber, $20 a month is the whistleblower tier, and a donation of just $10 per month makes you a truth seeker. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. 
my favorite book of the Bible that's not in the Bible is the book of Enoch. That's where we learn about the fallen angels coming to earth and commingling with the daughters of men and creating this, the Nephilim, right? This race of giants and so forth. And there are the watchers that are mentioned in the book of Enoch and, and, uh, he's raptured up into heaven and has incredible visions and he gets this secret knowledge from the fallen angels and there's a, even in the, included in the book of Enoch is, is a book of astronomy. It's, it's a fascinating fascinating book. Well, my guest tonight has actually stumbled upon a high Masonic ritual that incorporates the Book of Enoch. And we're going to get into that uh, right away. Robert W. Sullivan IV is a philosopher, historian, antiquarian, jurist, theologian, writer, lawyer, the only child of antique dealers. He was born on October 30th, 1971 in Baltimore, Maryland. And he um, spent his entire junior year of college abroad at St. Catherine's College in Oxford University, England, studying European history and philosophy. While in Oxford, he was a member of the Orthodox, or Oxford Union, rather. And uh, he has penned his first book some 20 years in the writing. It's called The Royal Arch of Enoch, The Impact of Masonic Ritual, Philosophy, and Symbolism. Hey, Robert, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I am well, Richard. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. You are a 32nd degree Mason, and we're going to discuss what that actually means here in a moment. But there's a lot of confusion. There are, there are different, uh, rights within Freemasonry. We, we have, and I'd like to take a few moments to discuss what, what those different rights are and the differences between them. We have the, the Scottish rite. We have the York rite. We have the Blue Lodge. Can you sort that out for us? Yeah, sure. You're correct. You have you have these sort of in, in America, you have these basically you have the two versions of the higher degrees, and then you have Blue Lodge. Blue Lodge Freemasonry is your first three degrees of Freemasonry, um, which is what's called the Entered Apprentice degree, the Fellowcraft degree, and the Master Mason degree. You you cannot enter the York Rite or the Scottish Rite without completing those three degrees. Um, it, you, you cannot enter either the Scottish Rite or the York Rite without first becoming a Master Mason. And again, this is what's called the Blue Lodge. This is what you would call your local sort of Masonic temple. Many people belong to this. They do the third degree. A lot of people stop at that degree. It's completely voluntary. If you want to go into the higher degrees, no one forces you to. If you want to, it's there. But in order to go into either the York Rite or the Scottish Rite, you have to be a Blue Lodge Master Mason. That is absolutely 100% required. If you do not want to go into the high degrees and you want to stop at the Blue Lodge at the third degree, that is certainly your right. That is your prerogative. There's nothing against that. No one, no one thinks less of you or, or, or indifferent to you if you choose to do that. A lot of Masons choose to go into the um, higher degrees. I chose the Scottish right. There's also the York right. The primary, the primary difference between the two, um, look, they're, they're both in, in the United States. They're both born out of something. The high degrees in, in America are both born out of something called the right of perfection, um, and these are 25 degrees coming out of Paris, France, in the in mid 1700s. They come into America by a guy named Etienne Morin, who brings them piecemeal into the United States um, via Haiti. And it's these 25 degrees which ultimately are transformed into the York Rite of DeWitt Clinton and T.S. Webb, what ultimately, ultimately becomes the um, Supreme Council of the World set up in Charleston, South Carolina in 1801, which is, of course, the Scottish Rite, which is, I'm a, like you said, I'm a 32nd of that. It ends at the 33rd degree. It really ends at the 32nd degree, but the 33rd degree is, is unsolicited. For example, 
I can't file a petition to join the 33rd. I have to be asked to join. And in order to be asked to join, it's usually indicative of charity work, social standing, i.e. you're a politician or a, a charity worker. Um, uh, alternatively, you, uh, you know, a, a minor celebrity can get offered the 33rd degree. Um, a politician, someone who does, um, you know, ph philanthropy in the community, these are usually who get invited into the 33rd degree. So 33rd degree is honorary. So it's correct. But it's an honorary degree. That's absolutely right. So from the 25 degrees, how do we get to 32? They piecemeal them up and they split them up, and some degrees overlap. They cut a couple of them in half. For example, in the original high-degree system, as it comes in, there's a degree called the Mark Master Mason, and this gets basically turned into degrees 1 through 13 in the Scottish Rite, or, or it would be degrees 4 through 13, basically. Degrees 1 through 3 are, of course, the Blue Lodge. But that one degree gets split up into, um, you know, like eight separate degrees. In the York Rite, it's a little different because they don't have as many degrees, but the main primary difference between the York Rite and the Scottish Rite, and the York Rite has something that is really unique to Freemasonry, and it distinguishes itself from both Blue Lodge and the Scottish Rite. And I'll just backtrack for a minute. In Blue Lodge Freemasonry, it's deism. The requirement to join is you have to believe in a supreme being, is the word that's used, or the great architect. So... If you're a Christian, you can join. If you're Jewish, you can join. You know, a Muslim can join, Hindu, Buddhist. Really, it's to exclude an atheist. An atheist is really who's supposed to be kept out. Scottish Rite is the same sort of philosophy. It's more deistic than it is Christian or Jewish, you know, or Islam. It's, it's a deistic sort of um, body. In York Rite, the York Rite ceremony ends with a degree called the Knights Templar. Um, or the Knights, you know, the, the Temple of the, you know, the Temple of the, you know, the Knights Templar, the, I'm, I'm skipping here. It's the Knights Templar uh, ceremonial. And in order to join that in the York Rite, that requires a Christian confession. So if you are doing York Rite and you're a, a, uh, a Jewish person or a Muslim or a Hindu, and you come to Knights Templar, you're probably not going to be able to join it because it requires that you have to pledge your allegiance to Jesus Christ. So in that aspect, Knights Templary separates itself from the other um, systems of Freemasonry. It, it depends on where you are. It's almost a geographical thing. Some Masons will go through the York Rite and just, you know, if, if they're Jewish or they're Muslim or they're deistic, they will stop at night at the Knight Templar degree. They won't enter it. To me, that's sort of almost like a Masonic sacrilege. I, I sort of believe that if you're going to join a Masonic body, you should complete the, the, the complete rituals. You should, you should take all the degrees. Some people have no problem with just stopping um, you know, right before they get to the Knights Templar if they're not Christian. Um, but in Scottish Rite, you, of course, can go right through the 32nd. No one makes you, there's no pledge to be, you know, a Hebrew or a right, Christian. Right. You, know, you know, you just go, go right on through. Robert Sullivan is here. The book is The Royal Arch of Enoch, The Impact of Masonic Ritual, Philosophy, and Symbolism. Robert is a 32nd degree a Mason. You're disabusing me of, of, of a lot of, I guess, maybe misconceptions that I've had. I mean, I, I, I'm speaking to you as someone who sat down in a, a, uh, a secret location with Ed Decker, uh, of course, the author of The Dark Side of Freemasonry, who, who uh, laid out his argument that, uh, that, that Freemasonry is, 
is uh, demonic, satanic, and we've all heard those. Those, but to hear you say that you that you have to swear an allegiance to Jesus Christ, uh, you know, and the Knights Templar, of course, we're familiar with with the temp- the Knights Templar guarding the the roads to the Holy Land uh, for for Christians in Europe. Uh, so let me let me talk here just for a couple of minutes before we we take a time out, and that is the origin of Freemasonry. You mentioned 1700s, uh, the 1700s coming out of Paris or, or France. Uh, where does Freemasonry begin? Is it the ancient stone cutters from uh, from Egypt to, uh, and those that later went on to build, uh, the, you know, the, the, the first temple? Uh, uh, does it begin in the 14th century? Uh, does it begin in the 18th century? When? Okay, well, the, the answer to that question is really depends who you ask. Um, when we talk about the thing in the mid-1700s coming out of France, that's really with the higher degrees. Blue Lodge Freemasonry, and what we were just talking about, is really, I mean, as it exists today, um, comes together in 1717 on um, June 24th, um, which, you know, is when the Grand Lodge of England is created. Um, that's when, you know, that's really when most people delineate the starting point for modern-day Freemasonry. Now, when you get into the esoteric and mystical side of it, you know, I mean, th- this is where you get into sort of the muddy conspiratorial waters. You know, where is its true origins? And it depends on really who you want to talk to. I mean, some suggest it comes out of these medieval Germanic guilds, um, building the medieval Gothic cathedrals um, during the Middle Ages. Some suggest that the, these stone builders got their knowledge in turn from the Knights Templar, who, who returned to Europe with these Kabbalistic mathematical secrets that they discovered in the Holy Land. That's really the origins of it. Um, there are people who, you know, and, and, and again, you know, these Germanic European stone cutters, these, these cathedral builders are supposed to possess, you know, biblical secrets of stone masonry that goes all the way back to the construction of the Tower of Babel. Um, you know, the, the actual really quote unquote, you know, and then you get into sort of also mystical concepts, you know, is Freemasonry incorporating, you know, the Egyptian mysteries, um, you know, and, you know, you know, concepts of the dying and resurrected son. Um, you also get into elements of what's called Rosicrucianism, which is sort of a proto Masonic secret society dealing with new age enlightenment um, and, you know, secrets. Um, it begins as a modern order as it is today in 1717, but I would definitely suggest that, that modern Freemasonry definitely incorporates all elements of what I just said. Um, there are elements of Rosicrucianism in it. There are elements of the Egyptian mysteries in it that can clearly be seen in the third degree of the Blue Lodge. Um, when you get into actual operative masonry, which is stone masonry, and again, you know, this is, has to do with what, you know, what's called the hermetic maxim of as, as above, so below, where you get into the concepts of the alignments of buildings to certain constellations, planets. Um, you know, this is now becoming more and more widely accepted with places like the District of Columbia. I'm here in Baltimore, Maryland, and you'll see it in downtown here um, if you've got the eye for it. And um, The all-seeing eye for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's really a symbolic language almost. Let's go back to the 1700s in Europe. And we've often heard it said that a member of the Bavarian Illuminati, Adam Weishaupt, infiltrated Freemasonry. 
What is the significance of that? I guess we should talk just for a few moments about who the Illuminists were and, and why it's significant that Adam Weishaupt apparently did what he did. The Illuminati comes on the scene in 1776. Their birth date is May the 1st, um, which is an interesting date to select. That's, of course, Beltane, which is sort of um, the springtime version of Halloween. The Illuminati is the sort of really extreme form of militant deistic Freemasonry. I suggest in the book, and I kind of go against what a lot of people say about the Illuminati, but in the book I suggest that the Illuminati was the Jesuits under another name. And this goes back to the actual creation of the Rites of Perfection in Paris, France, which I suggest in the book, well I don't suggest it, I state it, was really a counter-reformation agenda of the Jesuits to lure Protestants back to the church in Rome. And it was also a vehicle to restore the Stuart pretenders back to the throne of England. Um, all let's evidence, just, let's all, just talk about that for a second. How, okay. how was this designed? How did the Jesuits intend to lure Protestants back into the Catholic Church? Sure. At the Council of Trent, after the Reformation of Martin Luther occurs, um, the Jesuits lead this um, Council of Trent, which is what begins what's called the Counter-Reformation, where the Jesuits basically become Europe's version of the CIA, where they use any means necessary, subterfuge, espionage. Sure, um, they, tried to, they tried to assassinate Elizabeth I, did they not? They tried to assassinate Elizabeth I. They um, have taken over the Spanish monarchy, for lack of a better word. And... In 1717, when what comes on the scene, you have this Protestant, deistic, secret society club called the Freemasons, which is very popular. Well, how can we combat this? Well, let's create these higher degrees of Freemasonry. We know that the Blue Lodge only consists of three degrees. Let's create these alternative new degrees of Freemasonry, which sort of offset these other degrees. When you get into it, the guy, this is where you're getting into really murky waters. When you have, when you have the creation of the Blue Lodge in 1717, a Presbyterian an English minister writes this thing called the Constitutions of the Freemasons, where he just talks about Blue Lodge Freemasonry, and he dates it all the way back to you know biblical times. In the mid 1730s, you have a um, a French Roman Catholic Englishman living in Paris who is actually the tutor of Charles Edward Stuart, um, who is better known in history as Bonnie Prince Charlie. Uh, his name is Andrew Michael de Chevalier Ramsay, and he issues this famous oration in 1732, where he says, "No, you guys have got it all wrong." He said, "Freemasonry isn't Protestant." He said Freemasonry is an invention of the Knights Templar, who are these Roman Catholic warrior knights. And it seems that based on this oration, the, the Jesuits pick up on this theme, and at this Jesuit college, it's called the College of Claremont, I mean, it's right there in the heart of Paris, um, seem to be creating these high-degree um, rites and rituals, which they want to sort of take over in England. It never does. And it seems to be the sort of um, device to lure English to reaccept the Stuart pretenders back to the throne of England, who, of course, were Catholic, or at least James II was. When high-degree Freemasonry and the right of perfection, it becomes sort of popular in Ireland and um, places like Wales, but it never catches on in London because, you know, the English are very wary of the French, and certainly after, you know, the Henrican settlement, they don't like the Jesuits anyway. Um, but it's, it's, it's definitely, you know, and if you've ever gone through, you know, it's these 25 rights um, that ultimately become the, you know, Scottish right and the York right. And again, you're, you know, you're talking about themes that deal with Roman Catholicism, themes of papal monarchy, royalty. I mean, it's the royal arch degree. I mean, it's the royal secret degree. Right, so, and a number of monarchs, I believe Queen Victoria, had a Masonic uh, type uh, title as well, didn't she? Well, a lot of, a lot of monarchs in the, a lot of monarchs in Europe always called themselves um, the protector or the protectress of the craft. 
Um, I believe Queen Victoria called herself the protectress of the craft. Um, Napoleon the first called him, himself the protector of the, you know, craft. It's debatable, it's still debatable whether Napoleon the first was a Mason. That's a sort of 50-50 split on that. Um, people go either way with it. A lot of the generals were. But, um, when you get into what, what I was setting up was, when you get into the Illuminati, um, the, the, the Society of Jesus is, is suppressed, um, in the early 1700s. Um, because by that point in time, they were sort of perceived as these political meddlers, these political intriguists. Um, you have a lot of um, Jesuit writers talking about the Egyptian mysteries. The Christianity was just the Egyptian mysteries under another name. The papacy tried to distance themselves, and some, perhaps it's, it's been argued, certain popes that tried to shut down the Society of Jesus paid with it with their lives. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the Jesuits by that point in time had become their own, you know, sort of secret society. That's really the best way to describe it. Um, Pope Clement the Fourteenth suppresses them in the early 1700s, and it's right after that that you have the emergence of the Illuminati, which seems to be the sort of proto-Jesuit Masonic order. Um, and you know, if you look at the aims of the Illuminati, I mean, it's very anti-Rome, but it, you know, it's it's almost like the Jesuits are just trying to get back at the papacy um, for shutting them down, and it seems to have worked. Because, you know, the Illuminati just seems to be this sort of vehicle that carries and transports the Jesuits underground through the French Revolution, through the wars of Napoleon. Um, and then, you know, after the defeat of the Napoleon, you know, the defeat of Napoleon, the conclusion of the Napoleonic Wars, boom, you have the restoration of the papal states. Um, the restoration of the Jesuits, and the restoration of the Inquisition. It's all rather so, ironic, uh, Robert, that uh, particularly, and we'll probably get into this, time permitting, that sure. when Freemasonry is transplanted to the United States, and of course embraced by uh, George Washington and, and many of the founders, it's ironic, you know, here the, 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 the raison d'etre of the United States was to institute this egalitarian republic, and yet... The organization, uh, the fraternity that they so firmly embraced, was very monarchical. It is, but it's 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 a contradiction between Blue Lodge and the High Degrees. A lot of the found the the, the, the High Degrees, the, the the guys who are the founding fathers. These are your Franklin, your Washington, your Lafayette, guys like that. These, you know, well, not Lafayette's one of Washington, or Henry Knox is probably a better example. A lot of you know, in Hamilton. These guys are your Blue Lodge Masons, which is, you know, Blue Lodge is very egalitarian, you know, religious freedom, freedom of choice. You know, we're not going to dictate to a person how to live their lives. You know, whatever your own religious belief is yours, we're not going to tell you otherwise. It's not really until, um, after, you know, until the late 1700s, early 1800s that you really have the advent of the high degrees in America. The premise of the book is that you have uh, uncovered this high ritual that is heavily influenced by the Book of Enoch, which of course is one of the apocryphal books, I guess, of the Bible. It's not included in the Bible, though it's often referenced by biblical scholars. Of course, we're familiar with, uh, you know, the tales of the, the Nephilim and so forth and fallen angels and Enoch, who uh, apparently was raptured. Well, let's take a few moments before we get what this ritual, the Royal Arch of Enoch, uh, was. We, we need to, to set the table here and talk about the Book of Enoch. Just just walk us through that. Give us a thumbnail uh, portrait of the Book of Enoch, if you could. Sure. Um, what has to be understood is the Book of Enoch is off the history pages from around the second um, second century Common Era told basically about 1821, when it's finally translated into English um, at Oxford University. Basically, from that entire time frame, the Book of Enoch is off the history pages. In a nutshell, 
and they try to go through this as quickly as possible. The book of Enoch, Enoch is one of two people in the Bible to never die a physical death. The prophet Elijah is the other one. The book of Enoch, or one Enoch, as it's sometimes commonly called also, there's also a two Enoch and a three Enoch, but we won't have time for those. Um, but one Enoch details, in, in the Bible it said that Enoch is taken up into heaven by God. And what one Enoch documents is, what does Enoch entering heaven as a human being in corporeal form see? And he sees some sort of strange stuff that kind of goes against what you would call sort of orthodoxy. Um, he gets up there and he's told, um, or it's highly suggested to him at least, that the tree of life that, he added, that Eve bit from is Hebrew Kabbalah, um, that the apple is one of the sephirot. Um, he is explained that the, the tree of life in Hebrew Kabbalah is the emanation of the name of God. Um, he meets the archangels, people like Michael and Gabriel, and he also interacts sort of almost as a lawyer-type character. I don't really like to use that term, but it's just for the sake of our, our discussion. Almost like an intermediary is probably a better word for this group of fallen angels known as the Nephilim. Um, and the, these angels have incurred the wrath of God because they have come down to earth and have had sexual relations with the earth women. Um, and um, or and they have created the race. The, the, the Earth women have gotten pregnant and created this race of giants called the Nephilim. That's right. Yeah. Right. That's right. The um, the angels are often called the fallen angels are called the Watchers, um, and sometimes the Archangels are actually um, referred to as the Watchers because they watch the Watchers. But that's sort of. Um, you know, that's we're parsing out words there. But he interacts with this group of fallen angels, and it's through this group that he learns these sort of, you know, occult, you know, esoteric doctrines, um, mathematics. You know, you know, we're saying this now because it's common knowledge, but back in the day, these were sort of, you know, you know, cabalistic secrets, um, knowledge about astrology, astronomy, uh, the movements of the moon, the movements of the sun, mathematics. Um, secrets about writing, secrets about language, and what what the Book of Enoch basically you know documents is this experience, um, and what Masonic lore teaches, and come, this is coming out of these things called the ancient manuscripts or the Gothic manuscripts, is it's sort of when Enoch comes back down to Earth, he catches wind that the flood of Noah is coming and it's going to eradicate mankind and it's going to eradicate this knowledge that Enoch has brought down from these fallen angels. No, and of course Noah, I believe, is, uh, I'm trying to remember my genealogy here. It's either his grandson or his great-grandson. It's one of those two. It's either his great-grandson or his grandson. It's escaping me. But um, Enoch, Enoch, basically, in an effort to preserve this knowledge that he's learned from these fallen angels, builds this thing called the Vault of Enoch. Um, and what he does is he takes the mathematical knowledge that he's learned from these angels or these fallen angels and inscribes it on one pillar. Then he takes the seven liberal arts, inscribes that on the other pillar. Then he takes the secret name of God and puts that on this golden triangle in between them and seals it in this um, underground vault under nine archways to survive the flood of Noah. What the Masonic ritual implies this higher degree, it, it has to do with the recovery of this vault of Enoch, and this is being developed in the 1700s in France, which is incorporating clearly elements of the Book of Enoch, which shouldn't be happening, because the Book of Enoch is off the history pages in Europe, like I said, to around 1821. 
um, it, 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 copies of the book are discovered by um, a Freemason named James Bruce while traveling in Ethiopia. And in the early 1770s, he comes back to Europe with them, but they're just deposited in the basement of the Bodleian Library at Oxford, where they're not even translated into uh, English until 1821. And what my book documents is this historical anomaly that this Masonic rite or this Masonic ritual called the Royal Arch of Enoch, I mean, it's actually named after him, um, is incorporating elements clearly from the Book of Enoch, which should not be happening. Um, so what I suggest in the book is clearly there was either there was either a copy of this thing already floating around Europe, um, which someone saw, um, and this character who most likely saw this is this person I mentioned earlier named the Chevalier Ramsay, or alternatively, someone saw a very detailed outline of the Book of Enoch, um, which is possible also. So, you know, well, where did Raleigh get this knowledge from? So that there could be this sort of lost tradition um, or, you know, perhaps, a, you know, the secret book of Enoch or a secret library somewhere out there. That's sort of what I kind of conclude at. Fascinating. All right, we'll take a time out. Come back. Robert Sullivan IV and the Royal Arch of Enoch, the impact of Masonic ritual, philosophy, and symbolism. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Hi there. I want to tell you about a podcast I know you're going to love. It's called The Dead Files from Travel Channel. On The Dead Files, Amy Allen and Steve DeShavi investigate the paranormal activity haunting real people and homes across the United States. Amy and Steve come from totally different perspectives when they investigate. Amy's a medium. She sees and speaks to dead people and uses this skill to find out why someone might be haunting a place. Steve is a retired homicide detective. He tackles the case from the other end of the spectrum and uses public records and witness accounts to piece together the history of the haunted location. On every episode, Steve and Amy investigate a different, real haunting to help the family struggling with its effects. On one episode in Falconer, New York, a family keeps waking up with scratches and bruises. They also see a shadow figure lurking around their home. They call Amy and Steve to investigate. Amy uses her strength as a medium to understand who the presence is coming from and why it's so angry. Separately, Steve finds out the history of the house from the townspeople and in public records. He finds that several people who lived in this house died, which matches Amy's findings. At the end of the episode, Steve and Amy share their findings and make a recommendation on whether it's safe to stay in the house or time to get out. There are so many crazy stories on the dead files, and what's interesting about Amy and Steve is that they investigate the hauntings from two totally different perspectives. You listen to my podcast because you love tales of the paranormal. But if you want more, listen to The Dead Files wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. The highly anticipated second season of the hit podcast Proof is finally here. 
Proof is an investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here. Proof made headlines for its first season in 2022 after proving the innocence of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend Brian Bowling when they were just 17 years old. 25 years later, on December 8th, 2022, both men were finally freed based on evidence unearthed by Proof. In the second season of Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, this time traveling the streets of Manteca, California, to uncover who really murdered 18-year-old Rene Ramos. On June the 5th, 2000, Ramos's body was found buried under a pile of debris inside the shell of a new Home Depot building. Despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, tips that were ignored until now, Renee's boyfriend, 18-year-old skateboarder Jake Silva, and Ty Lopez, the 33-year-old uncle of one of Jake's close friends, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a resolution for 2021. Reduce stress and enhance your immune system. ESS-60 from C60 Evo. C60 is the carbon-60 molecule known to deliver more than 172 times the power of vitamin C, 172 times. ESS-60 is the purest form of C60, a known antiviral, antibacterial, and anti-inflammatory remedy that works. ESS-60 neutralizes free radicals from cell metabolization and external toxins to help minimize inflammation and maximize detoxification. Further, people report better sleep, more energy, and renewed mental clarity when they take our ESS-60 organic oil. To order your Miracle Molecule ESS-60, click on the C60 Evo link in the episode notes for this podcast, or go to c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen Serrett. c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen Serrett. Buy now and save 10% by using the coupon code EVRS at checkout. Again, use the coupon code EVRS at checkout. Richard has tiny talking insects living in his sock drawer. We have bags and we are living in Richard's sock drawer. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Robert Sullivan is with us. The Royal Arch of Enoch, the impact of Masonic ritual, philosophy, and symbolism. So the idea here of this ritual is sort of reclaiming this lost knowledge that uh, Enoch supposedly squirreled away prior to the flood. This was knowledge that he gained from fallen angels. So this would suggest then that reclaiming this knowledge would go against God's will, would it not? And, and, then, and then we get into this whole discussion about, again, whether the pursuits of Freemasonry are, in fact, antithetical to Christianity. Well, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question because what, what, you, what you have just suggested is really what, what is the crux of anti-Masonry in, in America, is this concept of, you know, that the Masons have sort of thwarted the will of God by preserving this sort of lost wisdom coming from these fallen angels, where you have, you know, and I guess it's almost sort of an individual subjective view on this, where there is a difference in this, 
and where where there's a split in this, where, you know, where you get into sort of strict orthodoxy, is in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and I don't deny this, the knowledge that Enoch learned is definitely considered, you know, unholy and evil. That being said, in the book of Enoch, it's the opposite. In the book of Enoch, despite the fact that the knowledge is coming from the fallen angels, God approves it. God has no problem with Enoch learning this material. I mean, and, and the knowledge, it's a split. I mean, it's, they completely contradict each other. I mean, there's no question about it. In the Bible, the knowledge is perceived as unholy and evil, whereas in the book of Enoch, the knowledge that Enoch squirrels away is divine and godly. Um, you know, it, it depends on your flavor, if you will. If you want to look at it one way, then you could say, yeah, well, then the Masons are sort of this, you know, secret cabal, you know, protecting the squirreled away knowledge and it's evil. But you can look at it the other way and say, well, you know, if you take the Book of Enoch, if you want it, well, yeah, well, the knowledge was godly and God approved it and had no problem with it. So, but you, you are correct. Um, you know, and, and where you're getting into more concepts within this country, you know, of the AC, anti-Masonry flavor of it is, is the restoration of this knowledge, um, and this goes to directly to the heart of the Royal Arch degree, and this is what I mentioned earlier in the show, is, is in order to restore this knowledge um, inscribed on these two pillars, it's the recovery of what is the name of God, which is squirrel, or it's not squirrel, which is placed in between them. It's what's called the tetragrammaton in masonry. It's, the, it's another way of saying the name of God. And within the Royal Arch ritual, um, that that name is is controversial because you know you know again this gets to the crux of anti masonry is you know it's basically a combination I'm not allowed to say it but I'll just get into the description of it it's a combination of um, either Yahweh or Jehovah and the other two syllables are these um, pagan sun gods um, it's not a it's it's not a creature or an entity that any mason truly worships. It's just a, a substitute, you know, they had to come up with a name, so that's what they went with. Um, I know that's probably not an alert answer, or an answer people, you know, may not want to hear, but really the truth of it. But, it, it, it you know, you know the, 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 the stem of it is, well, since you're not using Jesus Christ, this is, you know, some sort of, you know, pagan, you know, unholy, you know, secret society. No, they're, they're just combining three names, and, you know, again, if a person decides that's not right, well, that's up to that person. I can't dictate to them what, what to think or feel, but it, it definitely is part of, um, you know, anti-masonry. But, you know, again, just going back to the question, you know, the, the, the information stored on the knowledge, or on the pillars, excuse me, is, you know, considered divine in the Book of Enoch, but in the Bible it's considered unholy. Right. I mean, I, as an Orthodox Christian, I, I, I certainly can't see anything ungodly about, you know, the Pythagorean theory or, or algebra or the liberal arts. I mean, right, <laughs> God right. knows there are some, you know, some great seminaries around uh, North America that offer a good liberal arts degree. That's, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, the... Um, the 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 um, in in the in the book in in the sonic lore in in the royal arch ritual they discovered the vault of Enoch and it's the recovery of the tetragrammaton and what, why this is so important within masonry and, and and what my book presents is it's really the symbolism and the philosophy coming out of this degree that really is is what's defining America more such than the blue lodges because it's the recovery of this 
lost name of God, this, this tetragrammaton. So, okay, so we have this ritual that is based on or influenced by the Book of Enoch. The premise here is the recovery of this sort of lost arcane knowledge that was supposedly given to Enoch by uh, the fallen angels. What's the significance of that? Sure, well, the, the significance is twofold. In, in, the, in, the Masonic, in Masonic lore, I'm just going to go over this quickly because I'm going to go back to the other section, which is probably a little bit more important. In, in, in the high degree, it's the recovery of this lost name, which we've talked about. Is you know, if you you know, in the Masonic legend, when you correctly pronounce it, you can restore the knowledge on these on these two pillars. In the Masonic legend, this is even before the Masons discover the vault. Um, in the ritual, the vault had already been penetrated by these two characters. Um, one is named Hermes Trismegistus, who is sort of this um, Greco-Roman Egyptian god of wisdom who correctly um, pronounces the name and restores the seven liberal arts. The other character is this Greek mathematician named Pythagoras who has a Eureka moment in the vault, which Eureka, I found that the it being the lost name, pronounces it correctly and restores mathematics to the world. Um, the reason it's important, and this goes back to what we, were, we, we left off on before the, before the break, is the, the reason why this degree is so important and the philosophies associated with it are so important and the symbolism is so important and the ritual is so important, and which is what my 700-page book is really all about, is because it's the recovery of this lost name of God, which is called the Tetragrammaton. The, the, the search and, and, and recovery of this thing is the entire purpose, really, of Blue Lodge Freemasonry, where... If we go back in time to the beginning of the show, where we were talking about the Blue Lodge, and we said there are these first three degrees, which in order to enter the higher degrees, every mason or every person must complete. You have the three degrees of entered apprentice, fellow craft, master mason. Um, and, you know, just because of time constraints, I'm just going to bottle this. You know, the first degree is basically an introductory degree. The second degree is the, the candidate is told to basically, you know, this reflects the royal arch to seven, study the seven liberal arts to make himself a better person, yada, yada, yada. The third degree is where the candidate um, reenacts this ritual, this, this symbolic murder of a guy named Hiram Abiff. Um, who is the architect of the first temple, the first temple of Solomon. And what, what Hiram Abiff possesses is this secret name. It's called the, in, in this degree, it's what's called the lost word of a master mason. And Hiram Abiff has this. And, and it's, 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 he's using this name. It's, it's through this name that he's able to construct, you know, this temple, the, 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 the temple of Solomon. Well, in a nutshell, like I said, you know, I know we're up against time here, so I'm going to do my best to bottle this. But in a nutshell, these three fellow craft want this name for themselves, and, and the temple's nearing completion, and Hiram Abiff tells them, listen, I'll give you this secret name, I'll give you this lost name of God, you know, so you can have this knowledge for yourselves, but I'm not going to do it until the temple's complete. Once the temple's complete, I'll pass it on. Well, the three, the three fellow craft, that's not good enough for them. They conspire, and they, they, they ritualistically murder Hiram Abiff and he's dead. When when Hiram Abiff is killed, the the word of God, this lost name is lost. I mean that's what it's called. It's called the lost word of a master mason. It's never found again. When it dies when when, when Hiram Abiff dies, the word dies with him in the Blue Lodge. Um, so no one has it. Um, you know, in the Blue Lodge it's never recovered. When when in a nutshell, when the candidate as Hiram Abiff is finally raised to the degree of Master Mason you know, and this is when, when Hiram Abiff is resurrected, if you were, um, 
they they whisper in his ear a substitute word. And I, I can't say what it is, but I'm sure if, if one of your listeners or you want to go on Google and just type in substitute word of a master mason, I, I know it'll come up. But they whisper the substitute word in. It's not the real word. It's what's called a substitute word of a master mason. And forever within Blue Lodge Freemasonry, you know, the word is lost. Well, if you go ahead to the high degrees and you go to this Royal Arch degree, the word, the Hiram Abiff word that he had is found. I mean, and that, the, you know, the, this is the whole crux of it. So it's like, you know, you know, what is lost is now found. And it's really sort of this, you know, the symbology of the recovery of the Tetragrammaton, the name of God, you know, and the, re, the, the restoration of this lost yet legitimate wisdom that I, my book presents is really the symbolic philosophy that is really defining Freemasonry and it's really defining it in the United States, both, you know, on a symbolic, philosophical, political, you know, architectural, you know, and even almost spiritual level. And that's what the whole, the whole crux of my book is about. You said it's symbolic, but do, do you, do you believe it might be more than symbolic? Is there real power attached to this lost name for God? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I would say I would say it's definitely more symbolic than it is actual literal power. Some have suggested, and you know, I, I don't really go into it. In, you know, I, I hint at it in my book. I don't really go into it. But what I propose is, I mean, it's really at the conclusion of my book. You know, when we're getting into this, you got to know what the ritual is. And, and I'm just going to, because you know, time again, I'm just going to go through it. Is what what ha- what's happening is when the temple builders, when the Jewish temple builders are returning to the Holy Land from their exile in Babylon, they're building the second temple, which is called the Second Temple of Zerubbabel. And it's during this construction that they find this hidden vault with the pillars and the name of God. And well, well we've talked about this whole show, and you know, it, it's it's the recovery of this name and this knowledge. Well, I kind of suggest at the end of my book. Is this just a ritual, or is this some sort of real history that this thing is trying to relate? For example, you know, and, and I kind of hint at it, was at some point in time this lost underground vault, you know, really found? Could this potentially be the lost treasure of the Knights Templar? When they went to the Holy Land, you know, is this what maybe they really found? Was this sort of underground treasure vault, you know, with this lost knowledge? Is this what they were, you know, were, were so desperate to protect? This ties into concepts, and I suggest in my book, I suggest that I, I, I can argue it either way. You, your listeners are going to know this. You know, when you get into concepts of like Roslyn Chapel, which has you know lots of Freemasonic Knight Templar you know lore surrounding it, you have loads of references to the Temple of Zero Babel in it. You get into concepts where were the Knights Templars you know here in America first before Columbus. You know, you get into concepts of the Kensington Runestone. You know, in Oak Island. You know, was, is Oak Island this hidden vault of Enoch? Is this maybe what the Knights Templars really concealed down there? Is it real history, or is it just a symbolic allegory? I mean, it's a fascinating question. Um, I wish I could give you a definitive answer on it one way or the other. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's definitely worth researching and looking at. Well, maybe there's your next assignment, uh, Robert, the subject of your next book, The Arch of Enoch, real or merely symbolic? Yeah, um, it's definitely it's definitely um, something you know you know people are always saying you know this stuff um, coming out you know the Knights Templar well they must have discovered something over there I definitely suggest in the book I mean I can't prove it but um, you know I suggest that maybe this is really what they discovered was this hidden underground vault with with these pillars with the you know secret name and maybe this is what they were concealing. Um, 
you know, you know, you know, we're so desperate to hide. You know, you look at it, you look at it, you just stand back from it. I mean, when the Knights Templar returned to Europe, I mean, all of a sudden you have these gothic, you know, you know, you know, you know, you know, stone cathedrals going up, which are just perfect, you know, Pythagorean mathematical precision, you know, with flying buttresses. I mean, you know, where are these guys getting this from? All, you know, all but overnight. I mean, where is this information coming from? I mean, you know, you know, but before that, I mean, you know, just stacking one stone on top of the other, the Knights Templars return, and all of a sudden you got Chartes, you know, in these huge you know, you know, gothic cathedrals just popping up, you know, which are just mathematical, you know, you know, the golden, you know, ratios in there. You know, you got astral alignments, um, you know, you got alignments to the equinoxes and the solstices. You know, where is this coming from? Um, you know, and you get into Roslyn, you know, and again, you've got numerous references in there to the Zorobabel Temple, you know, and, and, and lots of Masonic symbolism and, you know, Egyptian symbolism in the mysteries. Um, you know, is this the is this what the Templars really discovered? You know, maybe they came back also with a copy of the Book of Enoch. Um, that's certainly not out of the question. Maybe this is the copy that was circulating around Europe. There you go. Um, Listen, you know. Robert, this is uh, absolutely fascinating. The Royal Arch of Enoch, the impact of Masonic ritual, philosophy, and symbolism. Robert W. Sullivan the Fourth. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. It was great to be on, and uh, I'd love to come back. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be right back to tell you a little bit about an upcoming episode. Colleen Forgus is here, the manager of our Strange Planet Full Script Dispensary. Hey, Colleen, how are you? I'm wonderful, Richard. How are you today? Terrific. You know, I was just on the website the other day, the Full Script Dispensary website, and I saw these protein bars, which I hadn't seen before. Tell me about them. Yeah, it's something that's very unique on our site. There's over 30 different types of protein bars. There are lots of flavors, several manufacturers. They can be a meal substitute. They can be something to just have a quick pick-me-up when you're out about doing your errands. And there's some that are gluten-free. There's organic options. Lots of different choices, even if you're interested in weight loss, there's something that's available to you on that website. There's flavors like raspberry truffle, crunchy peanut butter, mint chocolate chip, lots of good flavors and lots of options. All right, get your protein bars at the Strange Planet Full Script Dispensary. Just go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the Full Script Dispensary button. And don't forget, subscribers receive 10% off all products plus free delivery on all orders over $50. Talk again soon, Colleen. I'll look forward to Richard, thank you. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your health care provider. Coming up next time, the editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief, Joel Skousen, discusses the ongoing post-U.S. election drama and where we go from here. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs>